stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite World Talk radio shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept, and one we will explore today on the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe, and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon, and as usual, I'm broadcasting from very, very sunny Arizona, Scottsdale. Uh, today, it's going to be about 113. It's not there yet, um, but I'm not going outside from here on out throughout this day. We had a little taste of how hot this is yesterday. The, uh, the electricity went off just on our street. Of all the streets in the city of Scottsdale and the Phoenix area, Power went out on my street, and it got very hot very quickly. Unfortunately, we were only without power for about an hour, uh, but I know firsthand what it feels like to be in the house in 113 degrees. Not nice. Wonderful place to live, but summer sometimes gets a little iffy. We thank Alice Cooper for reminding us with No More Mr. Nice Guy that sometimes when we're on a serious self-improvement path, we begin to take our power back and we learn that wonderful word, no, uh, and people then think we're not so nice anymore. We're going to talk about how to resolve conflicts today and, and keep in mind that it's okay to say no. Uh, we're going to talk, as I said, about conflict. Conflict is a part of living. It's everyday living. We see it early on with children, sibling rivalry or rivalry between any two children. If you've had children, you often hear a dialogue between them that goes like this. That's mine. No, it's mine. Give it to me. No, I won't. Then what happens? Do they hit? Do they whine and threaten to tell mom or run to mom? Do they negotiate? You know. Maybe if you're lucky, you might hear a phrase like, how about if you play with it while I play with this and then we'll trade? Okay, that doesn't happen a lot, but sometimes it does. You can take that scenario up the ladder to the international level and ask the same questions. Do we fight? Do we take it to mediation? Do we negotiate? We have choices and generally come down to do we settle our differences that generally come down to do we settle our differences through aggression, mediation, or negotiation? Our guest 
today, Doug Knoll is a nationally recognized mediator, trainer, and speaker. He's a sought-after mediator, trainer, lecturer, speaker, continuing education teacher, and has been recognized as one of the best lawyers in America by U.S. News and World Report. He's a Northern California super lawyer in alternative dispute resolution. I hope we don't get into an argument because he'll probably win. He's mediated over 1,500 conflicts, including business disputes, clergy sexual abuse cases, victim offender criminal cases, and large litigated cases. His particular interest is in deep, intractable conflicts where emotions are running high. And I'll be really honest, uh, those are the ones I don't want to be around at all. I try to get out of there. He's hosted a weekly radio show dedicated to giving a voice to international peacemakers for over five years. That's a lot of radio shows. His current pro bono project is training murderers, listen to this, training murderers committed to life sentences in the largest women's prison in the world to become peacemakers and mediators. And we're going to ask him to tell us all about that. He's an author of a number of books. The latest is titled Elusive Peace, how modern diplomatic strategies could better resolve world conflicts. Doug's life experiences ground and inform his peacemaking practices. He's a second-degree black belt in Chinese Kung Fu. He taught Tai Chi for over 10 years. His deep spiritual practice includes training as an energy healer. So we have just the gamut of wonderful things that he does here. He has a variety of other interests and accomplishments, including certification as a level three ski instructor, instrument rated private pilot with multi engine and helicopter ratings. I love this Irish fiddle and harp player, whitewater kayaker and rafter, and spay casting steelhead fly fisherman. And I looked that up on Wikipedia, and I'm not going to explain it. You look it up on Wikipedia. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you Doug Knoll. Welcome, Doug, to the Self-Improvement Show. Thanks, Irene. Great to be here. You have quite a background. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the term lawyer turned peacemaker. It sounds like an oxymoron. I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell us what it means to be a lawyer and a peacemaker at the same time. Well... Uh, what it means is, of course, I'm a lawyer licensed to practice law in California and was actually a trial lawyer for over 22 years when I, through a series of life events, uh, decided that um, there had to be better ways to resolve conflicts than through the courtroom. And went back to school, got my master's degree uh, in peacemaking and conflict studies, was trained by the Mennonites, and, which is one of the traditional peace churches, and then left the practice of law to become a full-time mediator and peacemaker in 2000. So I use the term lawyer to turn peacemaker because it is seems like a contradiction in terms, but really um, the, the discipline of the law coupled with a deep appreciation of the spiritual and emotional and practical aspects of conflict and peacemaking provides for a very powerful foundation to help people resolve conflicts. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all lawyers saw themselves as peacemakers? I don't know if we'd want all lawyers to be that way. But <laughs> no, that, not but all. But I think that what's amazing is that <clears throat> 10 years ago, 
this idea of a lawyer turned peacemaker was absolutely unheard of in the law curriculums uh, of the law schools around the country. Today, 10 years later, 12 years later, there is not a law school in the country that does not have courses in mediation, negotiation, and alternative dispute resolution. And more and more young lawyers are interested in developing careers in this area. So it, it really is a trend. And, and I'm, I'm the chair of the Board of Trustees of our local law school, and we actually are the only law school in the country where you can actually become a lawyer and peacemaker. You can get your law degree and your master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies at the same time. Okay, let, let me ask you this. You had a law practice. You went away uh, to school, back to school. So obviously you probably lost most of your clients. Now you're in a whole new profession. How do you break into becoming an international peacemaker? How did you get into that? Well, the, the, let me start by saying that, that becoming a mediator, a professional mediator, is like any other professional practice. And when I left the practice of law in 2000, I was at the top of my career. Um, and uh, had just turned 50 years old was uh, and when you leave one practice and go into another it doesn't translate horizontally you actually no. drop to the bottom <laughs> I, I know <laughs> that's why I asked start all over again and like any professional practice it's based on a number of factors reputation the kind of work that you do how satisfied people are with you your willingness to, or people's willingness to refer work to you, your ability to satisfy clients, uh, and your ability to let people know that you're available to do, do the kind of work that you do. In my case, it was it's, it was particularly challenging because um, although in, back in 2000, people lawyers knew about mediation, they were not too interested in peacemaking, um, and even today peacemaking as opposed to mediation is sort of looked at with uh, a, a gimlet eye by a lot of lawyers. Is but, there a difference? Well, I think there is. When we, when we think about legal mediation, we're really thinking about settling, usually through the payment of money, a lawsuit. Um, and the problem with the law is that it, is a very, it has a very narrow, well, let me re-describe it, it has a very small toolbox of tools to help people resolve their conflicts. Basically, all a judge or a jury can do in a lawsuit is uh, provide a judgment for money, basically saying one person owes another person money, stop somebody from doing something, a coercive order, which we call an injunction, or declare rights, which is called declaratory relief. Those are the only three remedies fundamentally that are available to, to anybody going into a civil court or even a criminal court. And that's like handing a 747 mechanic a hammer, a screwdriver, and a saw and say, go fix that 747. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't I mean, work. They're really primitive tools for very, very complex pro uh, human problems. So what peacemaking does is bring to the table a deeper understanding of the spiritual and emotional dimensions of conflict and help people work through their, their, their conflicts and their emotions um, in a way that allows them to look at the conflict problem in a different perspective and, and make what are usually very difficult choices in the face of great uncertainty with an understanding of what the deep consequences of those choices are going to be. And that's so quite that, a bit different than just settling a case. Oh, vastly. How does peacemaking then differ from your normal mediation? Sometimes it doesn't differ. 
I mean, okay. it really depends on what, but sometimes it differs quite dramatically. So for, in a typical legal mediation, depending upon where you live and what your jurisdiction is, that it, that most, most mediators practice what's known as caucus-based mediation. So what happens is the parties all arrive at an office. It could be the mediator's office or an office of one of the lawyers. They all go into a big conference room. They talk for half an hour, an hour, and then they split up into separate rooms. And the mediator basically practices a shuttle diplomacy moving back from room to room all day long trying to get people to agree on, on how a case should be settled. That would be a typical legal mediation. A typical peacemaking session would be a, uh, there would be no, there'd be very little caucusing, and all of the work would be done in the same room, and we would be exploring a lots of different things other than just the payment of money to settle a legal dispute and to resolve a conflict. So we would be looking, for example, that we might engage in an interest-based negotiation where we're really looking at what are the underlying interests of the parties and how can we satisfy all of those interests so that nobody has to compromise? Or what are the injustices that have been experienced in this conflict that cause people to be so angry and frustrated and why do they hate each other? And can we reconcile, how do we go about reconciling those injustices? How do we go about righting unrightable wrongs? Um, and we do that with people who hate each other's guts and don't want to be in the same room with each other, staring yeah. at each other. And the skilled peacemaker is able to hold the space and create a safe container where people can talk about the things that are really important to them and eventually get the people to come around to a place where they can actually start collaborating on co-creating a new solution and a new way of being with each other, especially when relationships are at stake. And I won't say it's successful in every case. It's not. I won't say it's easy work. It's not. It's very difficult work. But, but when it does happen, it's extremely rewarding. Now, you did peacemaking at an international level, and you made, I have read the statement that our, our normal diplomats, and I would assume politicians, are not prepared to do peacemaking at this level, and yet we send them out to do that. Uh, yeah, 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 let me just let me just say that first of all, I have not personally as of yet I've I've trained but I have not actually been engaged in any kind of international mediation work. But mm -hmm. what I have done is taken my experience and the tools that I have and and looked at why it is that international mediations tend to fail. Um I read a book about the Camp David negotiations in nineteen ninety nine and two thousand in the Clinton administration and why they fell apart. And after reading the book, I just shook my head saying, what a bunch of rookies. Um, and these are the best and brightest people in the United States trying to solve a deep and intractable problem between the Israelis and Palestinians, and they made every single beginning mediation mistake in the book. And so that got me thinking about, well, wow, what's going on? And I started doing some studying, and I found out that, for example, mediations conducted by the United Nations are only successful 8% of the time. That's 8%, not 80%. My mediation success rate somewhere around 95%. They now, should you could, send you You could attribute an 8% success rate at some point in time to saying, well, they're difficult and complex conflicts. But when I started really looking at what was going on and did some intense and deep research into, into all of the peace conferences and mediated peace, peace uh, negotiations over the last 50 years, I found example after example of where the mediators going into the situation had no clue what they were doing. Um, and and in oftentimes made things worse, didn't make things better. I was looking for examples of good mediation, and Irene, I couldn't find one example 
in hundreds of piece assignments where where there was actually a good example of, of what I consider to be high, highly highly professional mediation. Not one. That's a really sad commentary on how we do business as a country. Doug, it's t- I, I, I don't want you to lose that thought. It's time for us to go to break, and I want to talk more about this when we come back. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Doug Knoll, saying, hey, stay tuned. We'll be right back for more. You don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in to Green with Envy every week for the most up-to-date information about living a green, fulfilling life. With a mix of serious inquiry and engaging humor, host Peter Terweem and his guest experts uncover topical issues and refreshing stories that'll keep you informed and inspired. We'll want to hear from you during the live program as well. Green with Envy is broadcast live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on World Talk Radio Variety. Follow the World Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at World Talk Radio. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the World Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash World Talk Radio or follow along with us at World Talk Radio, the World Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Doug Knoll. We're talking about... Mediation, peacemaking on an international level. We were talking about the talks at Camp David. And I I want you to tell us more about that, but I want to ask you this question. Are our diplomats and maybe even some of our politicians trained in any way to do this kind of peacekeeping? Short answer, no. However, um, a a couple of bright spots maybe are appearing on the horizon. One is that if you look at the curriculums of the schools in Washington, D.C. that feed the U.S. Diplomatic Corps and the Foreign Service, they are tending to offer more and more certificates and specialties in conflict management and dispute resolution, negotiation, and mediation. The problem is that the people, the students going through those programs get all the theory but none of the practice. So that's a problem. But what's most interesting is, is one of the bright spots in the world is in Geneva, Switzerland. It's, a, it's called the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. 
And they, that group has been promulgating mediation and peacemaking practices at the very highest level for about 10 years now. And each, January, each February, they convene a conference where they, they bring in people, high-level people, for, by invitation only, from all over the world, about 100 people, and they teach, spend three days teaching them high-level mediation practice. And this year, for the first time, Turkey sent its foreign minister and aides to this center to be trained in three days in advanced mediation techniques. Turkey. Turkey, Turkey of all countries, is deeply committed to the idea of professionalizing mediation at the international level. It's the only country in the world that's deeply committed to that and is investing its, its foreign ministry with training to, um, to actually become professional mediators. Maybe they, can, yeah, maybe they can lead the way. Well, so let me ask you this. If, if somebody like you had a, 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 and it sent out an invitation to diplomats and politicians, you know, back in D.C. or wherever, would they come? No, they wouldn't. And, and the reason is, well, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, but, the, but the fundamental reason is arrogance. Uh, we're diplomats. We're politicians. We have been appointed by God. We know better. Don't tell us what oh, we Oh, God don't, doesn't know, know that, though, does he? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm serious. There is a certain hubris that exists within the foreign, uh, you know, foreign uh, service establishment where people, it's a very elitist attitude, and they have a very narrow view of the world, the assumptions that they make about the world are about 300 years old. The, 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 the system of international relations is based on the Treaty of Westphalia, which was formed by a bunch of elitist Europeans in 1648 and persists to this day and has caused more grief than you can possibly imagine. And diplomats basically see that they don't, they're, like, they're like the 747 mechanic with a hammer, a screwdriver, and saw. Yeah. The only tools they see as being useful in international diplomatic negotiation are military strength, diplomatic relations, and, and legal means through, through uh, international courts. That's it. They, they absolutely reject mediation as a process uh, that could have any application or use to them whatsoever. That's a very sad statement. It's, it, it, it is not only sad, it just, it just proclaims how ignorant they are yeah. of you know, modern mediation and the, and the empirical-based practices that we bring to the practice of resolving conflicts based on behavioral economics, neuropsych- neuropsychology, you know, a whole host of other sciences that have taught us so much about human beings, how human beings process peace and conflict in their brains. And we don't utilize any of that to make peace. Well, it's not easy. I mean, we are no, hardwired. It's not easy. We, we are hardwired one way. We are hardwired to fight, and we have to make a conscious choice towards peace. If if we don't make a conscious choice, we're going to tend to fight. And, you know, what, and it's that conscious to, choice that's so hard. What comes to my mind is the people that we appoint to diplomatic positions. Um, sometimes don't even have a background in what's going on in our country or the country they're appointed to, much less a background in negotiation or peacemaking of any kind. I think particularly of the movie stars or the the big givers in campaigns mm-hmm. who are given big appointments as the they, ambassador. They, they have a little bit different. Ambassadors have a little bit different role than as mediators, although I think anybody who's in a leadership position of any kind at any level, whether it be a leader of a family 
or the leader of a country or anything in between ought to be ought to have some basic mediation skills. Well, yeah, the, you're right. Ambassadors in in larger countries tend to be political appointees. In in smaller assignments, they tend to be um, you know professional civil servants of the foreign service. But where I, where I really get concerned is this tendency for presidents of the United States to appoint special envoys to here, or special envoys to there. George Mitchell to the Middle East, uh, Richard Holbrooke before he passed away to yeah. Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, and these special envoys typically are either retired politicians like George Mitchell or dip, uh, career diplomats like Richard Holbrooke, who, again, are not skilled as mediators. They may have lots of other skills, and they may be fine public servants in their own right, but what they aren't are professional mediators. And they're being called in to deal with conflicts with a, with a very limited set of knowledge, skills, uh, and experience about how human beings respond to conflict across cultures. And again, it's like sending, sending that 747 mechanic out to the airplane with a hammer, a screwdriver, and a saw. And you exactly. get what you expect, you know, chaos. And that's what we have, isn't it? it pretty much. I mean, you can see it even in Washington, D.C. I mean, I, I mean, anybody who was half awake and over the last two months with the, with the arguments and the polarization around the, the debt ceiling and, and the, you know, uh, see, this is, and, and the deficit reduction talks and how people were just incredibly polarized. This what, is one of the questions I really wanted to ask you about. You know, we see this absolute cut now between Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative. And it's like, you know, if we don't play my way, I'll take my toys and yeah. go home. Classic conflict behavior. And, and, and it, requires, it requires a certain kind of intervention that so far I haven't seen anybody demonstrate. <laughs> you know? In the perfect scenario, <laughs> with this conflict going on, how could this be resolved? Who would you get together and how would you go about saying, okay, I've got, you know, the Republican, the leadership of both parties, I've got the key players that represent conserva conservatives, the key players who represent liberals. We've got all of these in the same room. Ooh. <laughs> well, Maybe you don't start there, but what do you do? There's a lot of preparation before you bring people together, but fundamentally, um, you've got a situation where you have people who appear to have intractably opposed beliefs. I mean, when Mitch McConnell says something like the goal of the Republican Party, it's on, the only goal of the Republican Party is to, is to make sure that President Barack Obama does not get reelected to the, to the presidency. That's not a very good policy statement about no. where we're going with our government. So, and what that indicates is a deeply held belief structure. So what I'm interested in as, as a person who's looking at this kind of conflict is trying to get the parties to look at what are the values and beliefs, what are the values, their interests, their needs, and their goals that underlie all of their beliefs. So, for you example, know, I, I would ask Mitch McConnell, okay, supposing that the Republicans take over the presidency, how does that make your life better? What do you hope to achieve by having control of the government? Good question. And then, and then get them to start articulating what it is that they're really trying to do. And do the same thing with the Democrats. And then may, is my experience, without exception, that when people start focusing on their interests rather than their positions, all of a sudden they start to see common ground. And they start to find ways that they can collaborate with each other to make things, to, to get what they want, um, period. As long as you're focused on preventing the other guy from getting what he wants, you will never get what you want. 
absolutely. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, back in the day, I hate that phrase, back in the day. (laughs) I know. But (laughs) when when the, the conventions of both parties spent the majority of their time working on the platform. Mm -hmm. And they hardly talk about platform anymore and go right to the personality of the candidate. That's because of the media. Media is all about personality. It's all about drama and conflict. You know, the media media is not interested in policy discussion. That's boring. You don't sell. Peace does not sell newspapers. It does not sell impressions on a website. So how can how can we bring that element into a peacemaking operation to get I, things back I on? I think that, I think that you can get some pretty good drama by an active, engaged, and intelligent population asking some intelligent and, and engaged questions of their um, of their representatives and political officials. Let me just give you an example. Supposing back uh, back ten years ago, before we invaded Iraq. People started asking the Bush administration, saying, "Okay, you want to go into Iraq? How much is this going to cost us? Yeah. Are we willing to are we willing to increase our taxes over the next ten years to the tune of one trillion dollars to pay for this? Are we willing to engage in a draft in case we don't have enough people in the volunteer military so that we can draft our young people into the military to fight this war? Are we willing to do that?" And if the answer is no, or if there's political resistance or social resistance to those ideas, gee, maybe we shouldn't be going into Iraq. Maybe we shouldn't be engaging in these military adventures unless, one, we're willing to pay for it in higher taxes, or two, and two, we're willing to draft people involuntarily into the military to, to fight the good fight. And so, 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 for example, I might ask any candidate, including President Obama, I said, okay, let's suppose that... Um, the opportunity presents itself, and you've got to make a decision about whether or not to invade North Korea or go to war with Iran. Are you willing to go to the U.S. Chat, to the U.S. Uh, citizens and say, are you willing to pay the taxes necessary for what's going to be a 10- to 12-year war? Are you willing to engage in a military draft so that we can have enough manpower yeah. to do this? Are you willing to, or do you have the leadership capability to ask those questions of the American citizens? And I'd like to know what the answer is. Oh, man. I'd love to be able to ask those questions. Do you think if enough people ask those questions, they'd be heard? Absolutely. You know, the one thing that we've learned uh, is that politicians require the support of the people. And if enough people start asking enough questions um, and don't get good answers, then the the political leaders lose their support. And if if you want examples of that, just go look in the Middle East. Um, we're seeing regime change after regime change, even yes. in the most brutal autocratic regimes, because they have lost the tacit support of the people. What really, what really hurts us is when people say, this is too confusing, my get, head gets hurt, hurts when I think about Libya and Al- Israel and Palestine and all the complexities of the world and all the conflict over there. Man, I can barely pay my own bills, and you're asking me to think about this stuff. Well, when you get into that kind of apathy or disinterest in what's going on around the world, you are tacitly supporting the status quo. If you don't like the status quo, just start asking questions. Just start asking questions. And and we have to ask the question, is it time to go to break? Yeah, it's time to go to break. So stay tuned. Doug Knoll and I will be right back after these brief messages. (laughs) 
Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Follow the World Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at World Talk Radio. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the World Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash World Talk Radio or follow along with us at World Talk Radio, the World Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 866 613 1612. That's 1 866 613 1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. My guest today is Doug Knoll, who's a peacemaker. And, you know, isn't it time that we have a peacemaker? We haven't talked about your book, Doug, Elusive Peace. Tell us a little bit about that book and what made you write it. Yeah, it's an inter- a little bit of an interesting story. I had... I had um was had a lot of concepts around my a third book about talking about conflict and conflict resolution and between my literary agent and I uh, Deborah Jacobs we had put together a bunch of book proposals and she took them off to all the acquisitions editors of the major publishing houses and they kept turning us down so I one day we had a conversation I said well why don't you go find out what they want because they were all they all liked my stuff they liked who I was but they just didn't like the direction we were heading so she made some phone calls and, and said that what they want is something slanted towards international peacemaking and what's wrong with international peacemaking. And I said, oh, that's easy peasy. So, yeah. So I started, I got a contract. We, we did a proposal and Prometheus Books, um, a major publishing house, great people, wonderful place to, to do business with, gave me a contract. And um, I started writing in March of last year, turned in the manuscript in September of last year, and the book came out. In late April of this year, it typically takes about nine months from the end of the manuscript, but they didn't change one word in the manuscript. Oh, that speaks well of you. They loved it. And the book came out. The book is called Elusive Peace, How Modern Diplomatic Strategies Can Better Resolve World Conflicts. Um, The website for the book is elusivepeace.com, which has book excerpts, the table of contents, the some videos of me talking about it, my blog, a whole bunch of stuff. That's a wonderful website, very informative, and I really encourage everybody to take a look at that. So, so what I do in the book is, and this book is written for an average reader. It is not written at a professional level or an academic level. I tried to make it, although it does have lots of 
uh, I do have lots of citations. It is not it is not the ponderous kind of legal writing or academic writing you might find in an academic book. I was really trying to show people through a variety of examples what's going on in the world and why current diplomatic strategies and technologies are just not up to the 21st century conflicts that we're facing. I mean, essentially, our leaders are using an 18th century technology to solve 21st century problems. Imagine that. It would be like using a cannon in Iraq. Yeah, exactly. Or, or it's like trying to, you know, communicate, you know, with a with a, a quill pen on on, on uh, vellum instead of using uh, instant messenger or Skype or something like oh. that. I mean, it's so. So I go through and basically, the, I talk about the fundamental assumptions of of the various schools of um, foreign relations theory: the realists, the neo neo conservatives, the idealists, and all this stuff. And I show how their assumptions are absolutely flawed. Under current current knowledge, our current scientific knowledge of how human beings behave, and then we start looking at conflicts around the world, and and I look at I look at issues like justice. I, how do you mediate evil? What do you do? When, what, what do you do when you have to mediate evil, like a genocide? Um, how do you yeah. deal with violence? How do you deal with super intractable conflicts like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict or the Pakistani-Indian conflict that's been going on, low-level war for 60 years. How does a peacemaker even begin to approach those problems? And what I, what I show in the book is that you can approach these problems from a, from a different perspective with different sets of assumptions than what is now being used by diplomats and foreign, foreign uh, uh, service people and politicians and show that with, a li- with more insight, with more sophistication, and with more nuance, with the tools that are available to us with modern mediation practice and technique, we can actually probably get better results. And it I sounds like it might sh- happen. sounds like it should be required reading for anybody in any level of government, uh, any level of the diplomatic corps, and in all the colleges and high schools. Well, I think anybody <laughs> can read this book, and not although it's written in the context of international relations. Anybody who reads this book who has ever been in a conflict before is going to recognize the same patterns. And the tools that I talk about are tools that work in the, in the sandbox in the schoolyard, just as you said in the introduction <laughs> of the show. They work in the sandbox as well as they work in the peace, peace conferences in the United Nations. They human can work conflict in- is human conflict. The human brain processes peace and conflict exactly the same anywhere in the world. There's a whole, there are a whole bunch of cultural overlays that I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, oversimplify that, but fundamentally at the neurophysiological level, our brains process peace and conflict exactly the same way, no matter what language we speak, no matter where we live, no matter what our upbringing is within a a range of quote-unquote normal, we all process this stuff the same way. And that means that the, the way that we behave and the way that we respond to interventions in mediation are all going to be approximately the same. And as a matter of fact, that's the case. There are scientific interventions that work. And there are interventions that don't work. That don't work. Let's, I want to bring it down where the rubber meets the road. You have a wonderful project going um, called Prison of Peace. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that project and how it's made a difference in the lives of the women. These are murderers. Many of them it, are. Not all, many, but many Not of them. all of them, but many. I mean, it's a tough prison. It's not, yep, this is know, not for just little easy things. Uh, tell us what you're doing there and, and the difference that it's making. Essentially, um, what 
my colleague and I, my colleague is Laurel Coffer, who is a, a well-known Los Angeles-based mediator. Uh, Laurel, and I, it, uh, Laurel and I are working at Valley State Prison for Women, which is the largest women's prison in the world. Um, and we, I can talk if you want about how the project started, but just to, just to basically, just to say what we're doing, we, we have been invited in by an inmate group composed of women who are serving life sentences without possibility of parole, almost all for murder, to um, teach them how to be peacemakers and mediators within their prison community so that they can reduce violence. They're living there all their lives. They have no chance of getting out. They are tired of the violence, and they want to create some meaning in their lives. So, so far we have trained over, we personally have trained over 80 women to be peacemakers. We've certified 37 to be mediators, and 16 of them are now in training as trainers. Those 16, by the end of the summer, will have trained Mm, pretty close to 200 women uh, to be peacemakers. Out of a population of what? Uh, it, it varies anywhere from 3,000 to 3,600, and of course the population is going to drop. Uh, the prison might even be closed, uh, depending upon what the State Department of Corrections wants to do as a result of the recent um, United States Supreme Court decision and also the budgetary woes that California is suffering like everybody else. So we don't know what's going to happen in the prison. The women, however, the women have already planned for this, and if they get um, transferred over to other prisons, it's their goal to take these seeds of peace with them and plant them where, wherever they go. And in the meantime, they're going to try to train as many women as they can in Valley State Prison for Women in these processes. And we know it works. I mean, it's very difficult to study this empirically, um, but we know anecdotally that substantial violence has been reduced in one of the yards and there are inroads being made on the other yards. They've stopped riots. They've stopped, uh, before, before it ever escalated into serious conflict, they've, they've solved innumerable conflicts uh, within the prison community that the prison guards are almost never aware of. Um, and we hear story after story about the effects that it, the effects they're having as peacemakers in the prison. It's can can you share any of those stories with us? Um, yeah, I can. I can. Well, I'll share one story, my favorite story, the one that is one of the most poignant. Um, let me just, the training that we put the women through is intense. Uh, we take them through a month of just learning how to listen to somebody else. All, we spend a whole two, three, a, a, a full two day workshop and then, and then, which is 16 hours of training. And then we follow up every week for three weeks with four hours of additional follow up and training. So just learning how to listen before they before we teach them anything about peacemaking, they get they get something on the order of um, thirty hours of in depth training on just and practice on just how to listen with homework assignments and writing assignments and stuff like that. So, with our first group of women, we showed up in class. Probably we were probably about uh, seven weeks into the into the first uh, first module, the listening module, and one of our women was in class, and she was just sitting sort of off to the side with just sobbing and these tears coming down, just totally upset, so we thought. And so we, we asked her, what's going on? And so she kind of through her tears and sobbing told the story, and the story was this, that when she was, admit, she was admitted to prison pregnant as a young woman, she delivered her baby in prison, and the baby was then, of course, turned over to family members immediately. She had no bonding or anything with the child. It was a little boy. Every week 
from that point forward, she wrote that boy a letter and never heard from him in 17 years, 18 years. Oh. So she told us that she'd been taking our class, obviously, participating, learning the material. She said, this time I'm going to do something different. I'm going to write a letter the way that Laurel and Doug have taught me to communicate and to listen. And I'm going to write a completely different letter. So she did. And the next week, she got her very first letter from her son, who she's never seen, who, who wrote her a letter. It was an angry letter, but he wrote a letter, and he also was going to come to the prison to talk to her. Whoa, that's major. That's, that's amazing. That's how powerful this stuff is. You know, listening um, is a skill that we really aren't taught. No, we are not. And it is not a skill that can be learned intuitively. You must be taught how to listen because you ha- it's counterintuitive. How to really listen to somebody is counterintuitive to what we think listening is, and it, goes, it really goes against the natural physiology of the brain. We have a capacity to do it, obviously, and it can become habitual, but it must be taught, it must be practiced, and it must be mastered. It's no different than riding, riding a bicycle or learning how to crawl or learning how to walk. But we will never learn how to listen unless we're taught the proper skill. Isn't it a shame that we don't have it in our school system? Yes, it is. Um, and unfortunately, it is not something that can be measured. It's not something that can, uh, you can, you can you build money on or give rewards no. for or measure because it's a subjective emotional experience. And, so the, and, and just like music or art, it... it you know, those kinds of social skills are thought to be in the purview of the family and the church and not the purview of the, uh, of the formal educational system, which is sad because parents don't know how to listen. Parents don't know how to and listen. The churches, and all the churches do is exhort. They don't teach. They exhort. And now it's time for us to listen to some exhortations because it's time for another commercial break. So we'll be right back with more from Doug Knoll in a minute. So stay tuned. Your favorite World Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. To succeed in life today, you have to respond well to change and be willing to take chances. On Star Style, Be the Star You Are, the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan and her sidekick, daughter Heather Brittany, deliver lessons of success spanning the generations with live interviews with trailblazers, authors, and experts. Join Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany on the Power Hour, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Variety. For positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio, it's Star Style. Be the star you are. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. 
Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. My guest today is Doug Knoll, a peacemaker. And we've been talking a lot about peacemaker and peacemaking in all kinds of situations. And so I want to ask him this question. How do we, in our everyday lives, get to be peacemakers? Um, well... Okay, self-improvement. Uh, how do you do that? So, so I think the very first thing to do is to recognize that to become a peacemaker requires you to be a peacemaker inside yourself, to, uh, still, yes. to, still, to still to quiet the conflict within yourself. And how do you do that? You actually have to go through a process of reprogramming your brain, your, your reactive centers, your brain, the fear reaction centers. And you, can, you do that through any kind of contemplative practice. So it could be mediation, I mean, mediation meditation, it could be mediation meditation, any form of meditation, uh, any form of yoga that allows you to still your mind. Tai Chi, of course, is powerful. Um, interestingly enough, I'm studying jazz violin, and I find that the exercises that I'm doing in jazz violin are very much like meditation. It requires me to still my mind in order to improvise. So... Um, any kind of contemplative practice that allows you to be quiet for any period of time, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, is the first step. Because what we're trying to learn to do is to be non-reactive to whatever is going on around us. But even that has an impact. I, I saw some wonderful numbers the other day. I wish I'd paid more attention. They had something like 2,000 people meditating in an area. I think it was in this country. And in that area, the crime rate... Yeah. It's called the Maharishi that. effect. It's been well studied. Yes. There, there are lots of articles on it. Um, in fact, I, uh, on my, at my website, lawyeratopeacemaker.com, I talk about the Maharishi effect. Um, it's, it's well studied and confounds everybody, <laughs> but, it's, but it's right. And actually, there's a formula for the number of meditators necessary to have uh, an effect on a given population. So the first step in learning to be a peacemaker is to learn to still yourself, to be quiet yourself. There are other exercises you can do. Um, start observing what triggers you, what, what reactively makes you anxious or angry or frustrated. And if you do the list, you're going to see it's only, one of, it's only going to be a few things. I mean, by a few, I mean probably 10 or less. It might be somebody cutting you off on the freeway. It might be something your spouse does that just really ticks you off or something your kid does that ticks you off. Go through and start identifying those five, the five things that tick you off the most and happen most frequently. And then when you identify those five things, start asking yourself, all right, do I want to have a choice about how I respond to that particular environment that ticks me off? When my spouse does X and it pisses me off, do I want to continue to be reacted to that or do I want to control the choices that I have? And think about the choices that you have. What choices do I have? And if I want to come from a place of a peacemaker and from centeredness and stillness, what choices do I have? You may still decide to be angry, which is okay, as long as you do it consciously. Or you may decide that you have some other reactions, like a compassion reaction. I was talking to a woman yesterday who said that what she learned to do is when somebody cut her off on the freeway, instead of flipping them the middle finger, she blew them a kiss. 
What a great idea. That's a great idea. I <laughs> so love stuff it. Stuff like that, that you learn how to create a new kind of reaction to the social stimuli, your social environment that causes you to be reactive in a negative way. I Those love the phrase you just ideas. gave us, be angry compassionately. You can, be, you can be angry as long as you are doing it consciously. You're making a conscious choice to be angry. Where we get into trouble is when we become unconsciously angry. It just becomes a reaction over which we have no control. Anger is a very good thing. It, it helps us set and define boundaries. But we have to be conscious about it. Otherwise, it becomes destructive. And so being conscious about what our reactions are, or how we're, not our reactions, but how we respond to what our responses are to the people and situations around us becomes very important. The more conscious we can, we can become about what choices we make, about our behaviors and our responses, the more we can be at peace within ourselves. The more that we can be at peace within ourselves, the better able we are to deal with those people who are in conflict around us. That's the secret. That's easy the to secret. say, hard to do. It takes a lot of practice. But, but it does work. It yeah. does work, and people can master it. If I can teach a murderer to be a peacemaker in the most violent women's prison in the world, what's the excuse of everybody else? Yeah, what's the, what's the excuse? Um, partly they, they don't, that isn't even a concept we know okay. in some circles mm-hmm. of our society. That's correct. And partly it's laziness. And partly it's too much work. It's hard. It takes discipline. Peacemaking you, takes discipline. You said that peacemaking is one of the hardest jobs you can have. That's right. And that's something we tell our women in the prison when we started. We said, we're going to introduce you to the hardest work you're ever going to do in your life. Because you're going to be walking into conflicts where people hate each other's guts. The first, all they want to do is pick up a pipe and start swinging it. Or pick up an atomic bomb and drop it or shoot off a cruise missile, it's easy to be reactive, it's easy to be violent, it's very hard to not be violent when you're really angry and really, really hate somebody. And your job as the peacemaker is to figure out what's the intervention to get people to slow down, calm down, and start thinking about what their choices are. When you have a volatile situation like they just had in London, Mm -hmm. uh, where everybody's bombing and throwing and looting and rioting, Where's the starting place then? How do you bring yourself to them in a way that they recognize they can calm down and look at this a different way? Well, I think the, in, a, social, in a, a large setting like that, the, the first thing that has to happen is order has to be restored, which is what the police are for. They're there to restore order. But once order is restored, then I think what has to there's obviously a lot of pent-up frustration and anger and resentment and deep feelings of injustice in London as in Israel. It's about economic issues. People are As feeling, is in the United States. As in the United States. So I think what has to happen is that there, there have to be opportunities for people to come together in community and, and talk about their frustrations. And talk would that about be something you'd lo- would that be something you'd love to do? Oh sure, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. you, you, and there are like, a lot of other people around uh, that like me who can do this work, and, and that would be very powerful. I mean, that's my that's what I think has to happen in Libya. Uh, if Libya is not going to fall into anarchy and civil war after after getting basic services reestablished in the country, the Transnational Council absolutely should be bringing in uh, an army of outside experts, mediators, facilitators process experts, and engage every single human being living in Libya in a national dialogue process about what is the new Libya going to look like, and build a national consensus from 
the family level up about what Livia is going to look like. Family that can be done level in the next 120 days. If they don't do that, I think they're going to have serious problems. Doug, we're right up against the very end of the show. What's the last thought you want to leave with our listeners today? If, you, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, go look at my book website, elusivepeace.com. There's a lot of information there that will help people figure, figure, learn about this stuff. You can contact me through elusivepeace.com, and you can find out about all of my other work through all the links on elusivepeace.com. But that's really the place to start if this conversation is stimulated you into thinking more about peacemaking and, and what our world can really look like if we were willing to put some effort out. ElusivePeace.com. Well, it certainly has hit a nerve in me. Next week's guest is Totoka Webb. She was born in poverty, raised in the projects of Nashville, and rose to become a very successful entrepreneur who has a, just a fascinating story to tell. You won't want to miss that. Doug, thank you so very much for being on our show. I hope that someday we can have you back and go into some of these things a little more deeply. Anytime, Irene. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. We ask you to take a look at Doug's book and to think about what you've heard today, how you can be a peacemaker in your own home, your own community, your own sphere of influence. This is Irene Conlon saying thank you for joining us today and come, about, come back again next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.